done this character study on Elijah and kind of the events surrounding him and saying, okay, how, how can I walk in a transformational faith? How can I walk in, in a faith that, that really transforms me and is really centered on God? And the first week, we kind of talked about being gripped by the greatness of God. You know, faith is not about having great faith in God. It's about having faith in the greatness of God. Uh, we could have mustard seed-sized faith, but if it's placed in the right object, the greatness, the sovereignty, the beauty, the truth, the omnipresent God, if our hearts is gripped uh, by the greatness of God, man, that, that just propels us forward to believing his word and acting on it. And then the, the last week we looked at uh, adversity and, and trials, and we really said this, we said kind of the craziest thing in the world, but we got to re- be reminded of it, that God designs trials for our life. That, that trials come for us from God, and they prepare us for the triumphs that he wants us to have. As believers, as people who believe in the word of God, what we believe is that trials don't melt us, trials temper us. Uh, that trials are to be considered as a, a great thing because they, they chip the edges off of our lives. You know, I had somebody tell me one time, Joshua, not every part of you is usable by God. Can I get an amen? Right? Not every part of you is, is usable by God. And so trials begins to chip and shape and begins to really humble me appropriately before God and, and really begins to, to prove my faith that when I believe in God, even in the wilderness, even in the valleys, that, that God uh, works in those situations. So that brings us to this week. And this week, here's what we're going to talk about. Faith that works confronts and replaces idolatry in one's life. If you want faith that works, you have to confront idolatry in your life. And not just like like one time, like, oh man, I'm going to beat idols in my life for one day and I'll be good. I'll be totally transformed. No, we're talking about deciding that my lifestyle in faith, my lifestyle as a follower of Jesus, I'm going to evaluate my life and replace idolatry in my life. The confession is this, I am a pastor of Cross Point Church and I have an idolatrous heart. My heart and my mind is filled with idols every single day. And you're like, wait, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. What is idolatry? What are idols? I remember the first time I read through the Bible, and when you read through the Bible, this is one of the great themes. It's a plot line. It's a theme of idolatry. And so I always thought of idolatry like in the Old Testament, right? I thought of the golden calf. You all know that story about Israel, and they made that golden calf, and they danced around it, and they like partied on all around that golden calf, and they did what they wanted and all that. I always thought it was a golden calf. Or uh, Isaiah was always talking about wooden, you know, uh, idols. You know, you carve out an idol, and you put it over the mantle of your fireplace place and you bow down to it. You know, I always thought that was an idol. Those represent idolatry. But the real issue of idolatry has nothing to do with a statue or a golden calf. It has nothing to do with what you put on a mantle or in a picture or even an image, a graven image. It represents an idea. And the idea is this. Here's what idolatry is. Now watch this. Idolatry is anything that's more important to you than God. Anything that's more important to you than God. Timothy Keller wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods, and, and he said this. He said, he said, anything that absorbs your imagination more than God, that's an idol. Anything that, that you go to to do for you what only God can do for you, that's an idol. 
If that's true, if, if idols are anything that's more important to me than God, then every single day I struggle with idolatry. Because there are so many things that are more important to me than God every single day. And faith acknowledges this weakness. Faith that works says, man, I'm weak. Every day I'm going to wake up and I need his mercies every day. And today I am going to cultivate a lifestyle of confronting and replacing anything that's more important to me than God. Because here's the truth. You live in a world of idolatry. You're surrounded by idolatry. Everybody's looking to functional saviors. Everyone is going to things to save them every single day. Money and power and sex and politics and and all these things that we go to. We go to these things as Americans. We go to these things as the British. We go to these things as Europeans. And we say, I'm going to go find me a savior today, but it's not going to be Jesus. It's not going to be the creator. I'm going to worship created things more than the creator. We live in a world of idolatry. Nietzsche, in a book that he called Twilight of the Gods, Nietzsche said this, there are more idols in this world than there are realities. Human beings are driven to be God makers. We want to make a God in our own image. We want to make realities and surround ourselves with reality that prop us up and make us supreme, that make us the captain of our souls. We are idolatrous, and faith that works confronts. Everybody say confronts. It confronts idolatry. Faith goes up on the mountain in the high places of our idolatry and says, you cannot have both God and your idols. You can't have it your way and God's way. Either it's going to be God's way or it's going to be your way, but you got to stop living in two opinions. Can I get an amen? Mm. Mm. James chapter 1 says, A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. We're trying to live with God, and yet we're trying to live with our supremacy. We're trying to, we're trying to say, oh, no, I love Jesus, and yet we do it our own way. We and me and you, we are idolaters. That's what we are. And we have to face it. We have personal idols, money. If only I had enough money, I would be better. If if only I could do it my way, then, then I would be satisfied. I'll be fulfilled. I'll be fulfilled. This is the language of our day, isn't it? I'll be fulfilled if I can do it my way. Our children can become our idols. One of the toughest things as a parent, isn't it? I'm looking to my children to be the meaning of my life. I look to vices. But here's the good news. Everybody say, well, don't say this, but you need good news at this point, right? God says, I'm here to help. I'm not here to push you down. I'm not here to say, you know what? You better fix this issue. God says, I will help you go up on that mountain. And I have a plan for you so that you can live in a world of idolatry without the world of idolatry living in you. And the first thing that you and I have to remember is that all the bad things that happen in this world, all of the vices, all of the the things that we do to each other, all of the failure of love, all of the failure of, of our lives is rooted in the bedrock of idolatry. 
The Bible says in Romans chapter 1, don't go there, but Paul says this. The Apostle Paul says, all the foundation of vices and everything that goes wrong with human beings is because we've exchanged God for the glory of created things. And when we exchange God and we worship other things outside of God, what happens is, is our heart gets broken, and that's when we fail to love one another. That's when we fail to serve, because ultimately idolatry leads to selfishness. You want to know what's wrong with relationships in every culture? Idolatry. It always is. Think about the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments. The first two of the Ten Commandments deals with idolatry. Number one, you shall have no other God before me. Number two, you shall not have graven images. And then it begins to go down into the practical things. You shouldn't murder, you shouldn't commit adultery, you shouldn't covet, you shouldn't lie and bear false witness. And what the Ten Commandments is saying is that if you exchange the glory of God in your heart, ultimately what's going to happen is you're going to become a murderer in your heart. You're going to become an adulterer in your heart. You're going to lie and cheat and, 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 and still and do all that. You're going to covet and be filled with greed. Why? Because you're going to put yourself at the center of your life. You're going to live for yourself and you're going to do anything you have to do, including lying so that people will like you or so that you can manipulate or so that you can have financial gain because you're going to worship something other than God and then you'll do whatever it takes to get that idol in your life. You see, you think this is not very practical. Like, I don't want to talk about idolatry today. Like, what I really need in my life is I need a better marriage. Or what I really need is I need to become a better parent. Or what I really need to do is just be content with a job that I hate. That's what I really need. But the truth is, is that the moment you begin to put God and his, and his truth at the center of your life again, and you worship the living God and not worship money, power, or sex, the moment you stop worshiping yourself and you worship Jesus, what's going to happen is you're going to be transformed. You're going to begin to walk in a new life. You see, faith that works confronts and replaces idolatry. And so we ask ourselves, how are we going to do this? I'm excited. I'm pumped. Everybody say, I'm pumped. I'm pumped. I want to replace me some idols today. I want the living God to be back on the throne of my heart and my life. How am I going to do this? And the way we're going to do this is we're going to go to Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 8 is all about confronting. It's a confrontational sermon because Elijah confronted the people of God. And so as a pastor, i got to confront myself and i got to confront you all because that's what the text does. You see, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching and correction. And 1 Kings 18 is profitable and gives us teaching on how we should confront and replace idols in our life. Now, we remember the context, don't we? Historical context. You're like, what's the historical context behind this text that refers to events that happened nearly 3,000 years ago? Idolatry. A whole nation. God's people had exchanged his glory for created things. And Ahab was king of over, over Israel. Here's what you need to know about Ahab. Ahab was one of the most evil kings ever in the history of Israel. You cannot find a more evil king than Ahab. And the reason why? Because he had institutionalized the religion of the false god Baal. And the reason why he had done that is because he married this wicked lady by the name of Jezebel. And she's one of the great villains in all of the Bible. And she marries Ahab, and she really controls and institutionalizes the religion of Baal through Ahab. Now, who was this false god Baal? Baal was the god who was supposedly in control of weather, rain. I went to a Notre Dame game yesterday. It was raining and cold. And if I believed in Baal, I'd be like, Baal, stop it. Because he was in control of the rain, but he wasn't. 
God's in control. So God made me cold, and it was to my good forevermore. It benefited my faith. Right, but but Baal is in control of storms, and of course, in an agricultural uh, uh, culture like like Israel lived in, that was really important. If you want crops, if you want to prosper in your crops, you got to have the the storm god, the the rain god, to come and bring. And so, all these false prophets went out to the people of Israel and said, "Look, this Yahweh thing and Moses, he was really cool, but what you really need, boy, that's that's a culture of idolatry. What you really need." There's the, what you really need. I mean, it's really neat that you got a Bible in your house. That's really cool. That's, that's really sweet. But what you really need, and Israel was told, what you really need is you need Baal. You need to come to his rites. The main place for worshiping Baal in Israel was on a mountain called Carmel. Mount Carmel was the place of the crime. And those Israelites go up on that Mount Carmel. And, of course, Baal was also in control of all fertility. So you could do some rites that included some sexuality things. And so everybody, I mean, it's it's the same story, beloved, isn't it? I mean, it's the same song. It's the same theme. The only thing that's changed between those days and now are just the names. It all includes sexuality. It all includes money. It all includes power. It's idolatry. It's idolatry. And if we don't have that money, and if we don't have that sex, and if we don't have that gender, if we don't have that thing, well, then I can't be saved. See, we're going up on the mountain. And if you only had, if you only had this temple of this culture, if you only had this world and its ideas, then you would be satisfied. That's Ahab and Jezebel. Well, our hero's Elijah, and we love Elijah. And God had equipped and fitted Elijah for this very time. For a time such as this, Elijah was fitted. He was made to be the man who would confront, who would replace the idolatry of the nation. And we saw that God's done a lot in Elijah's life to prepare him. Three years of wilderness and sitting by a little creek. Three years of kind of having to serve a widow and an orphan in the privacy of a home and in the limitations of being outside of the promised land. And his faith was proven. And in this boot camp that Elijah went through that was adversity, it prepared him for the battle of the false prophets. It prepared him to be the very man who would say, this is what you need to do, people of God. This is how you live without idolatry every single day. This is what you need to do, and you need to start doing it. Today is your day of salvation. And so when we come to 1 Kings 18, God says to him after three years, go. It's time. I want you to go and confront Ahab. I want you to go and confront this idolatry. And so Elijah's like, I'm ready. And so he goes and he finds a prophet, Obadiah, who's been kind of working like covertly with Ahab, but been hiding the true prophets of the Lord so that Jezebel could not kill the prophets. Now we know from Hebrews chapter 11, this was so bad because what Jezebel and Ahab were doing is they were killing the prophets of the Lord. And we know from Hebrews chapter 11 that they were cutting off the heads. They were sawing the bodies in two. That Jezebel and Ahab were doing the worst possible things to the true preachers and prophets of the Lord. And so Obadiah was hiding them. And so Elijah comes to Obadiah and says, go find me, Ahab. It's time to find him. And of course, Obadiah is still a little scared. And he's like, oh, man, you know, Ahab, and he's sawing people in two, man. Like, you're going to make me go and say that you're here. And then you're going to fly away because the Spirit's going to take you. And it's going to be bad. And I'm going to get sawn in two. And Elijah says, don't worry about a thing. Just bring him to me. So we pick, pick it up in verse 17. 
And in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17, we get the confrontation between this wicked king Ahab and Elijah. And let our lesson begin. Verse 17. It says, And when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. And your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord, and you followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. Now, the first thing I want you to see is this. Ahab, Ahab, and I was trying to think last night, and I haven't, I went to a game, so I didn't have as much time to really be precise in how I would talk about this today. I want to be appropriate. Everybody say appropriate. I want to honor God, but I want the reality of the Bible to be settled in your heart. Ahab is pathetic. He's a pathetic little man. And the reason why he's pathetic is because he, he actually thinks, in his head, he actually thinks that what he's doing is good for people. He thinks that it's good to have both Yahweh and Baal. He thinks that this plan for his nation as a king, that his ideas that he's gotten from surrounding cultures is actually the right thing to do. And so when he hears that Elijah is the one that says, until y'all worship God, there ain't going to be no rain. There's going to be a drought and a famine. And Elijah says, there's not going to be any rain. He actually thinks that Elijah is bad for people, that the truth of God and the commandments of God are evil. That Elijah representing the truth of how life should work is evil. Does this sound familiar to you? Our whole culture is Ahab-like. Because all, all culture is going to do is say, well, it's really neat that you have God. But if you get too absolute about it, you are the evil ones and we are good. We live in a culture where people call good things bad and bad things good. And we get everything all switched around and everybody's trying to have it all ways. And anybody that comes along and says, that brings misery, that brings death, the wages of sin is death. They're going to say, that's evil. You are a troubler to people. You are a troubler to the realities of how life works. And the problem is, is that God's people, when they're not living actively by their faith, they're going to start believing it after a while. And some of you have started to believe that. It's seeped into your heart. It gets into your heart. You get so surrounded by this world of idolatry that it begins to seep into your heart. And you go, you know, those things I was always taught that God revealed about life. Maybe I could still have God. And yet not that part. That brings trouble. And it le you know what it leads to? It leads to you thinking you're active, but you're not. Ahab is a puppet. He's controlled by everything else except for himself and God. He thinks he's in control of, of his destiny, but he's in control of Jezebel. And all people, myself included, the moment I begin to bow my knee and, well, you're, you're so important, you're so in control, you just do it your way. And I think I'm the captain of my soul, but actually I'm a passive participant in evil, and it's leading me and guiding me. That's Ahab. He was pathetic. And idolatry makes us pathetic. It makes me pathetic. And you, 
because we think we're so important that we've got this new enlightenment that we've really figured out life and we have not. And Elijah comes along and tells us, no, you got to turn back, man. You got to get back to the Lord, get back to the Lord. And we look at those Elijahs and we say, you troubler, you're a troubler of Israel. And Elijah says, no, I'm not. You're the troubler, Ahab. You're the one that's hurting people. You're the one that's destroying people's lives. You're destroying marriages. You're destroying the financial, economic life, the spiritual life. You're destroying people. You're the troubler. And I tell you what, Ahab, you go get all those false prophets, all those important people, and you bring them to their mountain. I'll come to your home field. I'll come to the place of the crime. We'll meet up on Mount Carmel. You get all the prophets, and there'll be 450 versus me. And I'll show you. I'll show you what these false gods do to people and how limiting they are. Mm. I got to go on. I I can't that. I got to go on. Faith that works confronts. We're in confrontational mode right now, man. We are in our face with the word of God. That's what we're doing. Sometimes we need a day like that at church, don't we? We just need to get in each other's face. It's not true what you're believing this week. Don't be blind to your blindness. Don't be a blind person and say, I'm not blind. You're hitting yourself up against the wall. I'm blind. That was Ahab. He was blind to his blindness. Have you ever met a blind person who said, I'm not blind? Wouldn't that be strange? That is spiritual sin. That's spiritual sin. It's not just blindness. It's blindness to the blindness. I'm not a troubler. You're the troubler. That's Ahab. And it's pathetic. That's what it is. It's pathetic in my heart when I do it, and it's pathetic in your heart when you do it. It's just the way it is. That's Ahab. Well, Ahab, who thinks he's in control, he's so passive. If he's in the presence of Jezebel, he does what she says. If he's in the presence of Elijah, he does what he says. I mean, Ahab is actually a man with no conviction. And so when Elijah's like, you go gather those prophets. If I'm Ahab and I'm living with conviction, I'm going to be like, I'm not going to go get nobody. I'm the king. Why would a, a prophet from a Bodunk town, a hillbilly from Gilead, tell me what to do? I mean, if Ahab any, had any real conviction, he'd be like, I ain't going to your church. I ain't going to your, I ain't going nowhere. Let's go talk about Jesus. I don't believe in Jesus. But see, that's just it. Idolaters, they think that they're convicted, but they're really not. They're confused. And Ahab is radically confused. So when Elijah says, go get the prophets, it's like Star Wars. Like, these are not the droids you're looking for. Ahab's like, those aren't the droids. Go get the prophets and meet me on Mount Carmel. And he's like, I'll go get the prophets and meet him on Mount Carmel. I mean, he just does what anybody tells him. But he thinks he's so in control. He's not in control. He's not in control. Look at verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel... And gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, here's the confrontation. How long 
we're going to keep doing this, guys. Are we going to keep doing it? How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. I love it. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer a word. I mean, they're so confused because idolatry is so confusing. It's like, it's like look, man. I mean, if, if you're really not into the God thing, well, then go for it. Everybody say, go for it. Go for it. Best youth pastor I'd ever had was my older brother. I had him as my, it was actually really confusing. But he was, my big brother was my youth pastor for a year and a half as I was finishing up high school. And he always said this to the students. And I always thought this was provocative. He always said, look, man, if you don't believe in Jesus in the Bible, do not come back to this church until you're ready to need Jesus. Go do it without Jesus as long as you want and see how that works. But why are you going to come to church and say, and your professed faith is Jesus, but then you go out into the world and you cross-dress with the world? How long are you going to live between these two opinions? Either God is God or he's not. So go live that way. Go do it. And of course, his point was this. The sooner you begin to make a decision, the sooner you'll fully realize what's true and what's not. Because you'll start hitting walls. And when you hit that wall, then come on back and Jesus will love you. Can I get an amen? You can come back anytime. That light is going to stay on for you anytime. But man, do it one way or the other. Either you're going to follow Jesus or you're not. Love that. Man, I am really preaching today. I hope I got enough in the tank for second service. Y'all got to tell me to calm down. You still got one more church service to go. Whoo! It's kind of fun, though, isn't it? Even when I'm being confronted by the Word of God, I'm like, I kind of like this. This is fun. I'm confronting idolatry in my heart. I love it. Verse 22. Then Elijah, I love this. And you know, Elijah in verse 20, he is full on a foreshadow of Jesus. This is Jesus. I love this. This is Jesus. He comes to the place of the crime. He doesn't stand off in an important place and say, you better come to me and show up or else I'm not going to save you. Jesus is like, I will leave heaven and I will come to a world of idolatry. I will come into darkness and I will bring the light. I will give my people an opportunity. I'm going to come to you. Coming to us is our Lord and our Savior. And Jesus is the greater than Elijah, but Elijah is great because he shows us Jesus. Verse 22, then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Bell's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, and put it on fire on it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you will call on the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered and said, it's well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God 
but put no fire to it. So I'm going to kick the football to you first. You're going to get the ball first, and I'm going to get in the second half. You all good with that? And they're like, yep. Verse 20, I'm just trying to put it in ways you can understand. Verse 26. And they took the bull that was given to them and prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And then they limped around the altar that they had made. So in the Hebrew, you're like, what, what's limping in the Hebrew? I thought that was pretty good. But good exegesis. Oh, they're limping and they're doing all this stuff and all these gyrations and they're just getting it going, man. They're co- Come on. Woo, 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 woo. Verse 27. And that, that's the world. Beloved, this is the world. They're dancing. They're limp. They're doing anything they can to get fulfilled. They're running and spinning and going into debt and they're just lambing. Oh, they're just getting all into it. I gotta get saved. I gotta get my salvation. I gotta find myself. I gotta do all these things. I gotta go and get that house. I gotta go and get that car. I gotta go and have that thing to feel important. I gotta go and get popular and get people to like me. I gotta go get the promotion if I'm gonna get fulfilled. They're just limping around trying to get that fire. And it never comes, does it? It's like eating sand. You're thirsty, and you're trying to eat water that is sand. Well, that's the world as I remember it. That's, we're still in high school, aren't we? We're still in high school, trying to find that group's going to give us meaning. There was the stoners with the mullets. Can I get a hallelujah? There was the jocks. There was the cheerleaders. There was the goths. Some dressed in black and some in pink and some with jerseys and some strutted like peacocks and others strutted like a geek. It it doesn't matter, but they found their group, man, and they were just dancing and limping and dressing and putting makeup on, and we never left that, did we? We're still doing it. Adults still do it. You can watch it on 24-hour news every single day. You're still seeing it happen. All these politicians, well, I'm so important and my side is so great and I'm going to out-argue you. And then the other side's like, I'm going to out-argue you. And there they are, talking heads, man. They're just limping. They're limping. Woo! And the fire never comes. The salvation never comes. In fact, the longer they limp, the more empty they feel. How can a culture with so much influence and affluence feel so empty? Because it gets frustrating after a while. You wear yourself down. You're so tired. And then you become 40 like me. And you go, holy smokes. I got stuff growing out of my nose and on my ears. I need new creams. And then you become 50 and you got to take pills to go to the bathroom and not while you're asleep. (laughs) And then you turn 60. And hopefully by that time, your daughters have married somebody that's good. And they bring you little babies and they put them in your arms. And you hope that you can live long enough so that they can graduate. You live long enough to see them in their uniforms. And the whole time, we're chasing the wind. And it's all vanity and futile. This is the world as best as I remember. This is the most relevant text you'll read this week. Oh, limping and running and jumping. That fire, that fire, it never comes. It never comes. It 
never comes. When we're young, oh, when we're young, no, my idea's really going to work. No, 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 my idea's really going to work. I have found the rhythm and the cadence of the limping that will work. This is going to work. And it's just like the generation before you. It won't. That fire ain't coming. It's not coming. Because you're worshiping a God that's not real. We're just going to have to put this video in the second service because I've got to go home, take a nap after this one. Where was I, man? Okay, Obel and the lymph, verse 27, and at noon, I love this. This is really great. At noon, Elijah, <laughs> he mocked them, and he said, cry aloud. What? Cry, al- cry louder, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself. Well, Elijah, this is church. What are you doing? You're, you're taunting people. Maybe Belle is in the bathroom, in the loo. I had to go to the bathroom yesterday when I went to that football game. And Joy's Johns, they were these, you know, the, you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever seen Joy's Johns at the big blue? To, and they were in a parking lot. And I was like, I got to go to the bathroom. I went into Joy's John. Maybe Belle is in Joy's John. Going to the bathroom. That's what Elijah is saying. This is great. This is great stuff, man. I love the Bible. It's so much better than church, isn't it? You know, we get in church, we're so sophisticated. Well, you shouldn't be so sarcastic. You shouldn't be so rude. What are you doing? Here's Elijah. He's going to the bathroom. That's great. I like it. You're like, that's a problem. Maybe. Or he's on a journey. Maybe he went to Europe on vacation. Maybe he's uh, on the Rhine. Maybe he's backpacking through Europe. Maybe he's really cool and trendy. Or perhaps he's asleep. He's like your dad on Christmas Eve, just sleeping. And he must be awakened. Where's your God? Where is he? Is that politics ever going to really save you? Is that politician really going to save you? That rights group? Awaken him. Where is he? Verse 28, and they cried aloud and cut themselves. This is when it starts getting tragic, right? They start cutting themselves. After their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. This is what happens. You're like, what's wrong with the world today? It's cutting itself. There's blood everywhere. It's total carnage. It's like napalm has been laid down on culture. And people keep going and going and going until they're so self-inflicted with their bondage. This is what the world is. And no one answers. Now, I have to say to you, this is really, I think this is pretty critical to having a faith that confronts and replaces idolatry. Because here's the thing. Some people claim that our God, the God 
of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, fully expressed in the person of Jesus Christ, the God who manifested himself in the flesh and died on the cross and defeated death. The name of Jesus. Some people say, well, your God doesn't answer very well either because I see wars and I see evil and I see darkness and I see things going wrong and I see the church praying and I see Christians praying. It doesn't seem like your God is really doing anything either. And sometimes the truth is, is that God is not centrally about what he puts in our hands or in our circumstances where our God is always speaking and where he always answers is on issues of the heart. In fact, not only do I find a difference between the world and the gospel here, I find a difference between religion and the gospel here. Because what religion is, is religion says if you get your rituals right, if you get your methods right, if you have enough priests, if you have a big enough church, then God will really respond and give you more money. How many of you all know that there's a prosperity gospel, Christianity? You go out there and you say the faith just right, man. You just pray it just right. You can name it and claim it if you get it just right right. When the focus on spirituality is what's put in our hands, well, then anything you go to is always going to be disappointing because you're going to find that seasons in your life, nothing's going to be put into your hands. But when you begin to deal with issues of heart and identity, that's where our God always answers prayers and no other God can. Does that make sense? You see, the gospel says, don't focus on what's in your hands or what's going on around you or your environment. Focus on your heart and your identity. And that door is always open. He will always answer that prayer. He will always answer the prayer of God. I don't care how much money I have or what's on the plate. Just give me peace in my heart. Make me a new person. Don't give me a new life. Make me a new person. Don't give me a bigger house. Give me a bigger heart. Don't give me more stuff or give me circumstances that are perfect or even a culture that's perfect. Just change my heart. The gospel always deals with the heart before the will, with desires before virtues. That's what Jesus came to do, is to make us new people. Psalm 37, verses 4 and 5. The psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord And he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. How will God act? By giving you the desires of your heart, especially when you are delighting in the Lord. And that's why Jesus said, if you knock, it'll be open. If you seek, you will find. If you ask, it will be given to you. A father would not give to his child a snake when he's asking for a stone. The question is, are we asking for the right thing and what we really need? Because what we really need is identity. What we really need is a transformed heart. What we really need is not the preacher to say, be a better boy or girl. We need the Holy Spirit to make us new people in Jesus Christ. And anytime we come up on any mountain or go into any valley and we bow the knee, and say, God, answer with the fire of identity and heart issues, that fire will always drop. Our problem is not that we don't ask for things. Our problem is we're asking for the wrong thing. It's not about crops. It's not about rain or drought. It's not about money. It's not about that. It's about being people formed and shaped into the image of Jesus Christ. It's about being a God-centered person who worships God. It's not about any of the other stuff. God changed my heart, and he always does. When I'm humble enough, when I'm proud, I'm always about whatever. 
I'm not going to go through a confession right now. But I'm a sinner and broken in these areas too. You see, the fire doesn't come. And I got I to keep going. Okay, let's pick it up. Verse 36. No, verse 30. Okay, it's Elijah. Second half. Here we go. Now Elijah has the football. Y'all tracking? They had their first half. They scored no points. 450 team members on that football team. And you got one on the side of the Lord. That's where the preacher says, one with the Lord is a majority over everybody else and no God. Can I get an amen? Oh, we are the few and the happy because we have the Lord. We have the Lord. And Elijah's going up against 450 in the second half. And here comes second half, verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. I don't have enough time. This is, this is like 10 sermons in one sermon. Amen. I mean, we're rocking it. But I love that verse because I like, here's what I like about that verse. The altar is neglected. It's dilapidated. And why is the altar of the Lord dilapidated? Because Israel has allowed the Baals and all the false prophets to do their little limping and they kick the rocks around and they've knocked it over. And that's totally symbolic of what happens to us Christians. We let the world just knock our altar down and cause our altar to be dilapidated. And what is the altar, beloved? The message of the cross. The message of the cross. The altar is always a foreshadowing of the cross. And what happens is we neglect the message of the cross because we're so focused on other things that absorb our imagination. Our imaginations have been absorbed by something other than the love of God and Jesus. What does the message of the cross do to my heart? It humbles me because the cross tells me I'm a sinner. I am. I'm a sinner. I'm weak. I'm so weak. Jesus had to come and die. But the message of the cross tells me I'm so loved. It tells me I'm so loved that I can go out into that world and know that that world has nothing to give to me that I already don't have that I need in Jesus Christ. I have his love. I don't have anything to negotiate with that world. I take that message of the cross. It's my identity. It's how I think about my life and my marriage and my relationships. I don't go to Sherry saying, Sherry, you have to be a perfect wife or we're not going to have a happy marriage. No, 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 no. I am satisfied in Christ. I can go and serve my wife with humility and confidence because I am loved. I don't need her to say to me every single day, you the man, because I am a child of God. I only need her to say that to me twice a week, and then I'm good. I'm good. But I don't need it every single day. I don't need my wife to be the prop by which I get my ego satisfied. And when you're a wife, you don't need your husband to be the ultimate man every single day. Because you have the ultimate man and the ultimate love in the message of the cross. Can I get an amen? And the world's dancing around saying, you better be the perfect wife. Or you better be the perfect husband. Or you children better be the perfect children. You better be so godly all the time. You better be perfect because I need you to be perfect. I am codependent upon you and the world and money to give me identity and the message of the cross exchanges that message of the cross says you are loved by the infinite God what else do you need put that altar back together put that altar back together kick those bad idols out of your life and get back to the message of the cross 
That's why Paul kept saying, I want to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because he knew that when it comes to human identity, that humility and confidence and the love of the death of Jesus Christ is the key to all of life. It's not just some kind of religious story from 2,000 years ago. It's a worldview. It's a worldview. It is our philosophy as well as our fulfillment in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And Elijah's looking at Israel and saying, you forgot who you are, and I'm going to put that back together. I'm going to get that altar back together. Verse 31. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar as great as could contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order. He cut the bull in pieces. He laid it on the altar and he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. I love it. He says, I'm, you know what he's doing? Here's what he's reminding them who they are and whose they are. They belong to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he puts those 12 stones together to remind them of the 12 tribes of Israel that you can read about in the book of Genesis. And one of those stones represented the tribe of Judah. And we know that Jesus came through the tribe of Judah because he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the book of Revelation. And what he was reminding them of is not only that they belong to God, but he reminded them of their mission. Everybody say mission. What's the mission of Israel? God came to Abraham and said, I will bless you and you will be a blessing to the nations. I will save you. All the nations have fallen short of the glory of God. And God was saying to Abraham, I have a plan of redemption and liberation. And my plan of liberation is going to come through you, Abraham, and through your descendants. I'm going to create a nation. And the one purpose of this nation is to bring light to a dark world. That through you, a greater than Moses prophet, Deuteronomy 18.15, would come. And you need to listen to him. And you will shine your light, my light, and my glory to all the nations of the world. What he was reminding Israel is that their identity was that they were to bring God to the world. Now, what had happened to them? What had happened to Israel is they allowed the world to actually act like that they could bring God to them. They had reversed their whole identity. Israel began to look at their surrounding cultures and say, please bring to me God. Please bring to me salvation. I've got crops. I've got people to feed. Please, culture, come and save me. And Elijah is reminding Israel, that's not why you exist. You exist to bring God to the world. Oh, that's good. You're like, how can I replace idolatry in my heart? you got to change the mission of your life. Does the world exist to bring to you the glory of God? Or do you exist to go and bring the glory of God to the world? That changes everything, doesn't it? Jesus said, 
go. Make disciples of the nations. Paul said to live as Christ, to die as gain. You live now for the glory of Jesus. You've been bought by the blood of Jesus and you belong to his purposes. You are an ambassador. You have a temporary residency in this world. Your permanent citizenship is in heaven. And between now and then, you go and you tell the world and bring God to the world. It's not about hating the world when it comes to people, hating the world being in you. It's knowing you're in the world, but not of the world, and you're in the world for a purpose. I'm going to show the world what God is like. My marriage exists to show the glory of God and Jesus. My sexuality and purity exists to show the world what God is like. My life is to bring God to the world, and I refuse to let the world bring God to me. I refuse the world to replace my altar and my cross and my Christ with another Christ. I will not do it. I will put those stones back together and I will say that's who I am. My name is Israel. My name is Christian. I belong to him. His identity shapes me. I got to finish. I at least got to get through this story. All right, verse 36. In the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, I love this prayer. Oh, Lord. Now, notice how simple his prayer is. Remember the, remember the first half? Man, they're just limping and dancing and cutting themselves, and they're doing all this stuff, and there's so many of them. And it's very impressive. It's all like this big thing. And here's Elijah. Simple prayer. Oh, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O oh Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O oh Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. He prays that God would be glorified that his ministry would be vindicated, and that people's well-being would be restored to them. Now listen to that. Do you hear that grace? That's grace. God, turn their hearts. God, help them. Save them. Then the fire of the Lord fell, hallelujah, and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones of the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal and let no one of them escape. And they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And the fire came down. Isn't this beautiful? You, know, you want to know what happened when Jesus died for our sins? You want to know what happened? The wrath of God fell on Jesus in our place, didn't it? And you want to know whose power and authority was defeated in Jesus' name over our life? He crushed Satan's head. He took that ancient serpent that has deceived us and killed us and murdered us and led us away from our God and exchanged our creator with created things. Jesus took his heel and crushed Satan's head underneath him at the cross. 
He took him into that valley and defeated him there. And all who believe in Jesus have authority over Satan and demons and principalities that try to get us influence by gods that are not gods. Faith that works confronts and replaces idols. And it's transformational. And this is not something you're going to do. I can't give you anything practically today where you're like, well, I'm going to solve that once and for all. Every single day, we need new mercies to face our idols. Amen? How do we do that? Let me... I'm really out of time. Let me just give, give me two more. Can I have two more minutes? When Sherry and I take the girls on a long ride, we, we go in a minivan. Amen. I have to drive a minivan for hours. I once thought that I would never drive a minivan. And there I am in a minivan with a car full of beautiful, wonderful girls. Everybody say girls. Now, one of the things that they absolutely love to do in the minivan, which has a DVD player, which I think is a good thing, is they love, they love, like, what movie do y'all want to watch? And you know what they inevitably always say is they always say the sound of music, which is a long movie and a lot of songs. And we have the 50th anniversary edition. Do any of y'all have the 50th anniversary edition, right? And it always starts out with Julia. My name is Julia Andrews. And 50 years ago, me and Christopher Plummer met you. And so the sound of music. And I've listened to this movie, I can't tell you how many times. But I've never seen it. <laughs> I have never watched with my eyes. The Sound of Music. I have heard it 20 times. I've never visually saw it. One time I was driving and it was a straight enough road. I kind of went like that and I saw a little bit of Julie Andrews. And then I was like, I'm looking up her dress. And I went, oh, I better not do that. You know what I'm saying? Like, never saw this movie. I heard, doe, dear, a female, dear. I mean, you can imagine, I heard it. And one time there was a movie night, not long ago, on a Friday night. And we take turns picking movies. And one of my daughters said, let's watch the sound of music. And I went, I don't want to watch the sound of music. I've heard it 20 times. And they said, yeah, but you've never seen it. And it's different, Dad, when you see the movie as well as hear the movie. Now, I watched the sound of music. And I have to say, and I will confess, I like the sound of music having seen it. It's a good movie. Can I get an amen? It's a good movie. So I watched it. And you know what I thought of? I thought this. Sometimes we get to a place in our life where we've heard about Jesus so much. And we're going through life. And he's always there. And we've heard. We know. And what we got to do is we got to stop long enough. And we got we to stop driving. We got to stop this madness. And we got to sit down and we got to get visual with Jesus. And what do I mean by that? Hearing him in more than one dimensions. You know what this is about? This is about spending time with Jesus every day. 
This is about waking up and saying, I am not going to make the center of my life, my job, or my family. And the only way you can do that in a healthy way is to spend time with Jesus every day and to see him in more than one dimension, to look at him, to look at him with a prayer life that's every single day. To look at him where you're opening up the word a little bit and hearing his, his voice. To, to, to meditate on his scripture. To not only talk to God, but to talk to yourself about God. To have a life of meditation. You know what that is? That's taking the time to not just hear Jesus' voice off in the distance, but putting him in front of you and looking at life through him and seeing him visually so that he is replacing the false idols in your life. He is better than your wife or your husband or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your children or your job or, your, or what people think of you or whether people think you're religious or not. All those stupid things we worship. And we got we to get at the center. And by the way, you will become a better parent when Jesus is the center of your life and they are not. You will become a better boyfriend or girlfriend when Jesus is at the center of your life and they are not. You will become a better church member, can I get a hallelujah, when Jesus is at the center of your life and not your church. You see, everything begins to get really healthy and in proportion to the way it should be when we are stopping long enough, not just to hear Jesus off in the distance, but we get him in front of us and we get spiritually visual. We get more than one dimensional with Jesus in your relationship. Can I get an amen? Faith that works replaces. Faith that works confronts idolatry. Let us pray.